Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Whoa. That old queen, a candid and adult take on queer life quandaries at a certain age. So please listen at your own discretion. Presented by Bernie and Tommy, the views here are purely those of the content providers and in no way reflect those of any service you may hear this program on. Now, please at your ears be upstanding for the <coughs> old queen. Hi, Tommy. Hi, Bernie. You, you old fairy. <laughs> I've got my fairy t-shirt on. I like it. Do you know what it says on the back? Um, I'm a sausage is your face. <laughs> no, it says laundrette, drop your pants here. <laughs> uh, how are you doing? I'm all right. I feel a bit like I've had a, a massive night out last night and not had much sleep, and I'm just kind of recovering, which is, I guess, I, is a version of that. Last night I was on Instagram Live with Timberlina doing tarot card readings, drunk too much, had difficulty sleeping, woke up at five, made some granola, baked a sourdough loaf, and here I am. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That last night was the first night that I've missed your tarot readings. Um, and I feel a bit bad about that. Um, but I did catch Timberlina's What's in Timberlina's Tin the other day, and I won. Yeah, you did well. Because they hide it quite a lot. Quite, they hide it quite well in that tin. <laughs> they do. Well, it wasn't actually in a tin which I think gave a bit of the game away. <laughs> um, but I think you might be able to catch it again on Timberlina's Instagram page if you mm. want to watch. Uh, there yeah. was an interesting one beforehand. Uh, she was on the line with someone from Finland, and they had a tin of a very unusual meat that we don't normally have in, in Britain, but they have all the time in Finland. Mm. what do you think it was well you told me what it was I, didn't you? oh yeah i did yeah but i, I actually can't remember <laughs> well my first so, guess no, but it was a strange kind of well i was i mean there was lo- it took a long time to guess and lots of us were on there you know thinking of what it might be uh but then i was i suddenly got closer when i was thinking about what do they eat in finland what are the animals that are in finland 
So mm. one of them was bear meat, which apparently you can get in a tin in Finland. Well, we should get that down you. <laughs> I think I've got enough bear meat in me. <laughs> <laughs> but the actual tin was elk. Mm. And I'm wondering what it would taste like. Would it, do, what do you think? Like I, venison? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't really know what an elk is. Is it just a big deer? Yeah, it's a bit like a moose. And okay. It, yeah. it has so like they, big they've antlers. Got an elk in, they've got an elk in the um, Bristol Museum. Um, oh, taxidermied. Just the skeleton. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I just always thought it was just a massive deer. Yeah. So I would imagine it tastes like venison. Probably it tastes a bit sort of ru- like rubbery. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think you're like, if you, if you, if someone was to engage in cannibalism, mm. what do you think? you taste like <laughs> me personally yeah. <laughs> i'm probably marinated in a lot of alcohol <laughs> <laughs> but supposedly humans taste like pork don't they but, yes i've heard that yeah, yeah we're called the long pig mm. because we taste like pork worth well, knowing yeah i mean you know if you're ever in a situation where you have to i mean <laughs> you know it's human egg and chips Anyway, what else have you been up to this week? Um, well, I was just this afternoon on a Zoom call. When it was one of those big Zoom calls. I think there was like about 40 artists in the room. And I thought I was on mute. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. And I'd just eaten a Magnum. And I had the wrapper just literally by my computer. And I just scrunched it up. Right. <laughs> it stopped the conversation. It's tracked. And then I realised, so I had to <laughs> mute myself. <laughs> to Usually, I'm quite good at muting myself. I'm often muted, even when I shouldn't be. <laughs> I know I've done that several times with you. <laughs> what do you think it is about your personality that people think they need to mute you? <laughs> well, I want to mute other people. Like, especially in those larger meetings, but I don't want to just mute them. I kind of want to fast forward through their comment. <laughs> so maybe you want to watch the rerun. Yeah. <laughs> My mum and dad used to do that with um, Strictly Come Dancing because they can't bear, they couldn't bear Bruce Forsyth. Oh, wow. So they used to watch it on Catch Up and just fast forward his bits. Oh, <laughs> I love a bit of Brucey. My mum used to watch it for Bruce Forsyth. Yeah. Bless him. So we've got a guest later, haven't we? We've got Dan Glass coming on. Yes. We've got Dan Glass is a bit of a a bit of everything, really. He's a bit of a historian, a bit of an activist, um, involved in the performance world. I know him through um, when I was invited to do a queer tour of London on a double-decker bus which the bus drew through London and went to all the kind of old kind of hotspots of this, probably 70s, 80s, 90s, I would say. And we parked up at each spot, which are places that no longer are LGBT establishments, and there will be a performance or a talk um, in those spaces. And I made a show about King's Crossing now, so I did a mini performance on the double-decker bus about the Bell Pub which was a, a pub full of memories for people in the 80s and 90s. Sure. How was it performing on a bus? It was, um, it was very hard work. Um, and I, I, 
I struggled that day. There was lots of different factors going on in that event. I think it was raining. I'd just done lots of touring that week. And also my ex-boyfriend happened to be off the bus as an audience <laughs> member. And I was like, I didn't really envisage this whole situation. Right. Um, but it was a lovely event, I think. But I was quite glad when I got out of that bus. But that was just, I was just having a difficult day. But br- a brilliant to do because you kind of, you forget about these places. And when you see how many places have been closed down, it, it's very sad. My God, I'm just thinking about what's going to happen to some of the some of our venues after lockdown because some of them are, so, are struggling so much at the moment. I know we're we're slightly coming out of it now, but a lot of them haven't been able to survive. Yeah, because of the lockdown, have they? So yeah. yes, it's scary. Yeah. So when we come out, all go to your local bars and support them. Yeah, as much as you can. Um, although I think. It's going to be restricted to people with gardens, isn't it, to start off with? Oh, really? Okay. Well, just because it's outside. I thought you meant, I thought you meant like clients. Have you got a garden? <laughs> <laughs> well, that too, yeah. <laughs> I've got a communal garden, so maybe my other, uh, you know, people in the block will have to come with me. Yeah, you'll um, have to come with a bubble. <laughs> oh, I'm talking bubble. Have you found a bubble yet? I don't want to be tied down. It's a bit like getting married, isn't it? It's like, I know. how can you, you know, who am I going to choose for a bubble? Do I choose a friend for a bubble? Or do I choose I think, a lover for a bubble? The thing is as well, it's like, I think I feel like I want to be asked. I don't want to ask. Yeah, this is, <laughs> I'm, I'm exactly the same. It's, it, <laughs> it's like marriage proposal, isn't it? It's like, you want to be asked. But that's the whole thing about it. And being, I mean, it's all so monogamous, this whole coming out of lockdown thing. It's like, it, it's kind of counterintuitive to how a lot of queer people think. It's just like, I mean, how are we going to yeah. do this? You know, what else have you been up to? Have we got a What That Really Old Queen this week? Well, we have got a What That Really Old Queen because basically since lockdown, I've been developing a new show kind of writing and reading a lot and watching a lot of clips. So I've been focusing on the friendship of Kenneth Williams and um, Maggie Smith. Some people know about that friendship, but most people don't actually. And they were great friends. Do you know Um, what? I didn't know about that friendship until you told me. Yeah. And it's like, what's interesting is that they sort of, they learned from each other. They copied each other. So Kenneth was slightly older and had been in a been sort of a bit more experienced. And when they did a show together, which was a kind of it was called Share My Lettuce, it was a kind of review <laughs> show. Maggie was there, and and he kind of took her to one side and say, "Oh, listen, D- Ducky, you know you, you're being absolutely boring. You just wouldn't say those words like that. You know, it's all like that sort of thing." Um, and you know, they just developed this very intimate relationship, and you know, trusted each other, loved each other, copied each other, and so. In the performance, I'm trying to embody both characters. Right. They're going to be sat at dressing tables in my bedroom. So it's a kind of like my uh, lockdown visitation from these kind of icons and their communication together and, and to me. 
Was that the picture you posted on Instagram? Was that your Maggie look? Posted a picture no. when you were in a little like brown bob. No, yeah, that was just last night, just messing around with wigs. But oh, I do okay. need to get a, I need to get a proper Maggie wig. Although she's but, got a bit of a bob going on at the moment, hasn't she? Yeah, her she was always much. That wig is a bit more like plum, and she was much more of a kind of typical auburn style. Yeah, a bit more copper. Yeah, and I've been writing a lot to different because there's been a lot of people that have written about Kenneth Williams biographers and um, there's the brilliant companion to Kenneth Williams so getting kind of people's first-hand experience of people that knew him and a lot of people talk about Kenneth as a kind of bit of a tragic figure because I mean there's been lots of conversations around whether he took his own life at the end because mm. he keep, he's a he's a he's a meticulous diary keeper yeah and so he records a lot of the his his feelings and a lot of his feelings are dark and sad and and the last comment that he writes is oh what's the bloody point but i think it's important to remember that he wasn't always like that you know he 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 had brilliant amazing times like lots of people remember him for a carry on films where he was just a brilliant comic figure yes um, but reading those diaries I was kind of so saddened that he didn't really enjoy playing a lot of those roles. He, I mean, he mm. thought that he should have been playing more highbrow kind of acting roles. I, I mean, the, the writing is a little bit kind of, <laughs> how should we put, shallow. But mm. he was so brilliant at it. You know, mm. it was just so good. And it, I think it's testament, those films are testament to the actors that are in them because they're good because of the actors really mm. because it's all a all a bit of fluff really isn't it but those characters and actors make it funny recently? not recently no but i've i mean i grew up on carry on films I, I must have watched them all you know at least 10 times each mm. but yeah kenneth williams is one of my idols you know him mm. and because of those carry on films and other things as well yeah julian and sandy and and he used to do like an audience with and um, was brilliant and he yeah. did all the chat shows didn't he when we were growing up and he because he had so well, many that's how kind of i him from my years yeah so many anecdotes i mean he was so good for a show because he would just entertain and when he goes on those chat shows he doesn't give any space like the the interviewer doesn't even have to ask a question he just rolls into one anecdote and one anecdote and one anecdote and it's like the, the the interviewer doesn't even have to be there. No, exactly. He just steals the show. Yeah. <laughs> Bless him. A lot of his frustration was, like you say, down to the fact that, that he wanted different types of theatrical roles and he did get pigeonholed, really. And then sort of later on, he just existed really on radio appearances, TV appearances, there was not much really diversity. He got very tired of performing in the theatre. He suffered quite a lot with his stomach problems and depression. He developed a bit of a bad reputation within the theatre for not showing up or like pulling out of runs and those sorts of things, really. But do you think think that was self-doubt? Because he, I mean, he was a gay man, and we all have a bit of self doubt because of how we're brought up in this straight society that we're meant to fit into as LGBTQ plus people. Do you think that was a product of that? It's difficult to say, really, because I feel like it's also wrapped up with inherently being a performer. Mm. So, kind of what you're talking about is like 
exactly what Maggie Smith has as well. Right. Um, it's just this constant gnawing doubt about like it wasn't good enough. Yeah. And I think if you're a theatre person, you can be like, oh, it'll be better tomorrow. I'll make it better tomorrow. Yeah. And it just carries on, really. But then, yeah, but if you're doing recorded media, it's just there, isn't it? You have to put up with whatever that is. Yeah. And well, this is podcast is case in point. <laughs> It's okay. The three and a half listeners that we have love us. But yeah, a lot of a lot of performers. I think I I would say all performers have that, mm. don't they? I mean, I certainly I, have. I gave up acting because I was I got stage fright because I got you know was so uh, crushed by self doubt and that I wasn't good enough to perform and and it it took quite a while for me to come back to performing mm. um, and. And I guess it's probably something intrinsic to performers' personalities in the first place is uh, the need to be loved and the need to have that kind of adulation in a way because we're kind of insecure in ourselves anyway. Mm. I mean, I've been, I've sort of got to a point of show where I've written a script and I'm sending it out to people. And one of my friends, who also was a, was a friend of Kenneth Williams, looked over the script and he was like, well, I understand why you're now. I kind of understand why you're fascinated with him because, like, there's something about you. He said to me that is like when you're on stage, you just feel very natural and, and like you can command the audience and stuff. And when you're just in real life, it feels like you're slightly bored of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you didn't take that as a comp as an insult. <laughs> <laughs> You're you're slightly bored of life. <laughs> yeah. Or just like the interactions of it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I have. I don't know. Well, I guess we can all be a bit like that at times. I mean, it's not really, not really about me, is it? <laughs> but it's a good analogy. Hello, Mr. Dan Glass. Here's Dan. We can't hear you, we Dan. We can't hear you, Dan. You might have to switch your mic on. Look at the concentration of his face. I know. It's... <laughs> <laughs> You know what's so interesting about doing this show is that we get to see people's rooms mm. because everyone's on Zoom. I guess it's just the product of the you know, the times we live in, but we get to see the, the kind of backdrop of people's rooms, and it's always very interesting. What do you think of Dan's room? I, th- I think it's nice. There's a, l- there's a lot of interest there. Yeah. Can't it's, hear you, Dan. Still can't hear no. you. He's going to switch the computer off. Okay. Switch the computer off. <laughs> but that's a good technical tip. Yeah. <laughs> it always works well, doesn't it? I just ordered a printer and it arrived. And I, I mean, I posted it on Facebook. I've never met a printer that I like. And um, has anyone got any recommendations? So I got this new printer through, but somehow it was just not connecting to my Wi-Fi. Oh god! I was on, I was on a support call call to this woman in Romania for a couple of hours. And we still hadn't worked it out by the end of the call, and she's, but I had worked out how to do it with a cable. But then I took the cable out, and it started working again. <laughs> well, so I, th- I think I replied to your post and said that all printers are possessed by demons that are just meant to make humans' lives hell <laughs> on this planet. And I think that's a case in point. Well, when I looked at, when I looked at the printer, I looked for I wanted it to be robust enough so that when I got angry with it, 
and threw it around the room. <laughs> it, would be, it, would, it, would, it would be able to cope. And is it? I'm sort of slightly worried about where you where you pull it out to add the paper because it feels like it's quite a delicate thing. Right. I feel like in a fit of anger, I might smash it up. Right. Well, I'm sure you'd be fine. I, I just have a lot of anger towards objects. I smashed up a watering can earlier on in the week as well. see i like i like this i I think we're all a bit like that aren't we it's better that you do it to objects rather than people yes i never do it to people (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) so it's just so frustrating because i had this beautiful pink watering can can't be used i had to throw it away after that oh well time to buy a new one yeah (laughs) at the moment i'm using a teapot Okay, well, that works as well, doesn't it? Right, Dan Glass has left the building. I thought that was a really good interview. (laughs) I mean, I think we got all our points across. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we have a little break? And then hopefully after the break, Dan will be back. I'm going to put the oven on. Put the oven on. I'm going to turn the iron off and uh, we'll have a little break and we'll be back after this. Right, so we're back. Yes. And we have Dan Glass, our fantastic guest this week. Hello. Hello, Dan. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to see you. Oh, it's good to see you too. It's been a while. Yeah, where are you? I'm at my home in Shadwell. And my, I know the back of my, you can see my bedroom, it's just loud and busy. Yeah, I'm in Shadwell. I've just come back from the um, Black Lives Matter demo, which has been brilliant, actually. It was really good. There was no fascist to be seen in sight oh, after all of to- Tommy Robinson's chat. Well, you know, you know, you've got County Lucky Stars and not get complacent, but it was really inspiring. And after the, all of the however many months of lockdown, things are changing, and still we've got a long way to go. But it was really inspiring to be there. So, but now I'm back home, back home in Shadwell. Back home, it's safe in Shadwell. Yeah. How do you describe what you do? Because you you do quite a lot of things. She gets yeah. it's about well because the book's coming out. It's like it's people have been like, he's an author, he's an author, hmm. and I'm like, oh, well, I guess I am now, but I've, I'm still not used to that. Anyway, it might be a total flop, so then we might want to ignore that. But I, as an activist, as an activist, as a community activist, you know, it's a very loaded term, and it's something that I've had to learn to reclaim. But then a lot of different grassroots movements for a range of social justice issues across the world still challenge the term activist because it can be seen as very individualistic. But that's why I term myself as a community activist. And the areas that I'm particularly active on in the community is HIV and healthcare, being part of ACT UP London, where we met originally when we were planning the Bang Bus. Um, Mm. ACT UP stands for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which has been a like incredible um, movement disobedience movement since 1987 in the fight for healthcare for people living with HIV and for everyone. Um, and between, at the moment, particularly on a range of um, LGBT issues, I'm an activist and tour guide with um, Queer Tours of London. And we first met when it actually turned out to be one of my favourite projects, the Bang Bus, which was a tour of London but on a bus. Yeah. And the particular theme was the loss of queer spaces. So we had um, five 
bus stops and we went to five one, five different venues, one per decade since partial decriminalisation in 1967. Um, and we created what the clubs were like at the time. Um, and so it was really intergenerational. It was really uh, interactive. It was hilarious and just chaotic and fun and queer and rowdy. And we've done a few other queer bus tours of London since then. But yeah, they're, they're the main things that I've been doing. It's and, really and, that the, the activism can be mixed with some kind of performative, engaging, fun mayhem. Oh yeah, for me, that's essential. That's my yeah. that's my go-to. Um, there's this book, I've lost it, and I think I've lent it to someone. It's called um, Pleasure Activism. It's just come out. And for me, that kind of concept says it all. So creativity for me, like art and creativity and music, uh, cabaret, like all formats for expression are really important for me when it comes to activism because- And dressing you know, up. And dressing up, exactly. And being fabulous and, and learning from our queer ancestors in terms of how they've defied gender binaries, defied uh, narrow-minded heteronormative culture. So being fabulous is one of the many great things about queer culture, which we uh, like to relish in. Mm, totally. So tell us about your book, Dan. United Queerdom, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Which is yeah. coming out when? Uh, it's coming out on Monday. Oh, my right. God. It's coming out on Monday. Uh, it's called United Queerdom from the Legends of the Gay Liberation Front is of Tomorrow. That's the kind of strap line. Um, and ah, it's come so fast. It's been about two, six, late 60s, because uh, it's the 50th anniversary of the Gay Liberation Front, who started Pride. Right. Um, so they started in 1970, and the first actual Pride was in 1972. You know, and it's, 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 it's changed so much now. A lot of people probably think that Pride started in Tesco or Barclays um, rather than <laughs> actually, you know, really beautiful, intersectional, powerful roots, you know, and super relevant today because, you know, uh, the Gay Liberation Front was formed out of two activists from the UK who were in America. They went to the Black Panthers Convention, which was called the Philadelphia Convention, a key black power movement who were working in line with the women's liberation movement where Huey Newton, one of the key figures in the Black Panthers, uh, made a, a like controversial speech at the time saying that we should welcome in the gay liberation movement. And these two activists were inspired because there was a lot of people there from the Stonewall uprisings the year before. And then they came back to London. They were students at LSE, London School of Economics, and um, started the British um, Gay Liberation Front, who then two years later started Pride. So these legends, some of the they're living legends, the ones who are still with us, uh, and we've been meeting the last like four or five years in what's called GLF Thinkings, which the kind of format is consciousness raising groups, which they had back 50 years ago, whether it was around coming out, how to come out, or dealing with family homophobia, dealing with homophobia in the workplace, dressing up in the way that you, in the clothes that you want to wear, um, sex, intimacy and so we've read we recreated them in the last five years to look at what are our issues today um how we can reclaim pride and pay tribute to his radical roots god i've gone on essentially so that's it but what it's, i'm interested to know is like how does that conversation feed into conversation like that we are having now today and is do you sense the, a sort of a, a kind of divide between younger queers and and the elders and can they can they learn from each other um, well what a great question i think 
well, there's divisions everywhere. And when, you know, my boyfriend always challenges me on when I say queer community, because just like all demographics of society, there's huge divisions in opinion and ways of making sense of the world. And same in the queer community. In fact, I'm glad it would be boring if we all thought the same. So just like back then, 50 years ago, what Stuart Feather from the Gay Liberation Front in his amazing book called Blowing the Lid talks about is the straight gays. The one, there, you got it. Amazing. Yeah, have you read it? I've read bits of it, yeah. I, yeah. But my, my favourite memory of him was of it is when he read it out loud. Yes. Well, on the bang bus. Uh, well, on the bang bus, and then he came to Bristol afterwards and read another part of it, yeah. Beautiful. It's such an amazing it's book. It's such a different, like, when someone reads, like, someone that lived that experience reads it, it's just yeah. brilliant. He is such an icon, such an icon, and he's been through so much, and it's still, you know... Basically, I found that book because I went to Gaze the Word Bookshop and thank fuck that's opening again on July the 1st. I was so happy when they announced that. I went there and I was really hungry for understanding the history of Pride in London because I was really um, uh, just disempowered by the corporate takeover of it. And Uli um, suggested I read Blowing the Lid and then it changed my whole world i emailed stuart relentlessly i was like let's be friends let's be friends and then we met up and we've been working on various projects ever since then one activist meeting in 2018 that we were in together everyone was doing a name round and saying their pronouns and and how they want to be you know just a short sentence about themselves stuart was like stuart feather i'm a radical queen i'm a nancy boy i'm in defiance of society what else do you want and i'm like oh my god who is this person they're amazing um, so like Stuart talks about, there was divisions back then. You had the, what he calls the straight gays who wanted to assimilate and then the radical queens. And you very much have the same now, I think. Now, yeah. You very much have the same now. And I guess intergenerationally, well, of course, there's a lot of ageism. There's a lot of um, what I found actually a bit more in ACT UP, in HIV activism than in LGBT specific activism, is there's a lot of, uh, a bit, not, they're not too much, but it's still quite vivid, is um, unhealthy ways of dealing with trauma amongst the generations. By the, by any accounts, this isn't everyone, but like, of course, in the AIDS epidemic, for the people who, would, who were in that first epi- major pandemic, I can't even begin to imagine who lost most of their friends and their loved ones. And because of, you know, uh, huge fear and stigma, which still goes on and still, you know, a mass unrecognition of what the community went through. There's still no AIDS memorial, etc. There's still a lot of pent-up, undealt-with trauma. And so sometimes you do get people who are from that the older generation who say to the younger generation, what do you've got to um, moan about? You don't know what it was like. And then trauma is valid on whatever account for anyone who's dealing with it. The younger generation of people living with HIV still have massive stigma to deal with. So I think we have to work together as an intergenerational community and look at the bigger goals mm. rather than turning on, on each other. But also, so don't, that- we, don't we share trauma? I recently read uh, Straight Jacket by Matthew Todd, where yeah. uh, he, yeah. I mean, he is overcoming society's legacy of gay shame, whereas we're, we're all kind of in a bit of trauma because we have to try and fit into straight society. And yeah. isn't that something that binds all of us, no matter what generation we are? Both, I think our community throughout the generations are dealing with such a blizzard of um, compounded trauma mm. um, that it's essential that we join the dots about everything from, you know, from 
um, decrypt like criminalization pre 67, mm. fast forward not so long to the AIDS epidemic to Section 28. I think, yeah, it's, it's essential that we see our collectivized trauma. But one of the kind of philosophies that I'm really inspired by, which I kind of unpack in the book, is um, Paolo Freire, who wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed. is the kind of founding figure of popular education. And one of the kind of phrases that he uses, how well, he looks at how we could humanize each other. And if we're not conscious and look at the wide zoom out and look at the structural reasons for trauma, the oppressed will easily become the oppressor. So that's yeah. why Matthew Todd's book is really good because it looks at the at the kind of real deep roots, the pillars of collective trauma, so that we don't like attack each other. Mm. Brilliant. Um. So, books out. Oh, sorry, what's the date of the book coming out? Ah, June the fifteenth. Oh, and just to say, um, yeah. So it's out on Monday. The kind of pillar of it is it's being the founders of the Gay Liberation Front. What their experience of it now, and then you know their aim which they always pull me up on when I, when I also get it wrong, is is absolute freedom for all. A lot of people would think it's queer freedom for all, sorry, or, or freedom for all the queer community, but it's not. But they saw all injustices as connected. You know, it was formed out of black power, women's liberation, the anti-war movements, student rights. So they always, you know, they always remind, it's not just about LGBT rights, it's seeing the systemic issues behind all injustices. So, you know, some of the incredible campaigns that they've led in the last couple of years, uh, which is platform in the book is um, the No Pride in War campaign. When, um, well, in 2015 or 16, I should know this, 2000, I think it was 15, UKIP, a march on pride, uh, the United Kingdom Independence Party, mm. who were infamous for loads of homophobic HIV phobic, racist, xenophobic statements, and then they were allowed to march on Pride, and yeah, it was so vastly different from the root, the re- the reasons it originally started. The next year, BAE Systems, an arms company, deal with the illegals' weapons trade all over the world, which kill thousands of innocent people, including were allowed to march on Pride. Not even just the military, but an arms company. Yeah. So the GLF were really part of a, a credible movement called. No pride in war, and then so it looks at some of those case studies to so that we can really continue the journey towards uh, absolute freedom for all. And then lastly, it platforms. I think it's sixty-five other people who were involved in everything from lesbian and gay support the minors, lesbian and gay support the migrants, the African Rainbow Family, trans rights groups, uh, all kinds of groups, different um, intersections of queer freedom and, and, and wider areas of justice. And then lastly, I weave in my personal journey into it all. It sounds amazing. I can't wait to read it. I'm I'm chomping oh. at the bit. Oh, thank you. Thank Where can you. people get it? Can you get it on Amazon or can you get, or is there, would you prefer people to go somewhere else? Z Books is the best place. Yeah. Let me just get their website, Z, zbooks.net. In right. fact, my, I'm presuming that Gazer Word is going to stock it. I would bloody hope so, um, because they inspired me on this whole journey. Yeah, they will. They will. In fact, I'll just send you the link to at uh, the track. Send me the link, and I'll put it in the link. the description of I'll the podcast, the so so our listeners can um, click on it. Amazing! Amazing! Uh, oh, brilliant! So, yeah, Dan, um, are you going to? So, at the end of our show, we do a little thing called Queens of Agony, where we answer some 
quandaries from our listeners. Can yeah. you stay on board for that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we'll go into that now. Uh, I'm going to do a big gong. <laughs> and because uh, that's what I like to do before this section. Uh, we'll do some <laughs> Queens of Agony. Um, how old are you, Dan? 36. 36. 36. I, I don't think you're a, yeah. quite in the old Queen pantheon, but um, we'll, we'll let you in the throne room. It's fine. So anyway. You, you, I think Dan's got a lot of history on his shoulders. He ter- certainly he, has. He, he's he's an old soul. He probably can all the Queens from the past. <laughs> yeah. Well, I um, <laughs> learning from, you know, Queer Tools of London and the book is all about like, there's a phrase I like coming into rather than coming out. Like when we when we start on the journey of self-acceptance, when we start digging beneath the kind of amnesia, the kind of institutional homophobia, it's such an incredible world that we've been denied. So I really like what do we come into rather than coming out of and learning from old queens who've paved the way for us um, is essential because otherwise you can either just recreate the wheel, recreate mistakes and then just like not really cherish the incredible cent- like life like universal journey before us exactly well my lifetime spans the lifetime of your book so (laughs) that's that's my experience (laughs) (laughs) anyway um so i'd like to we'd like to get your input on some of these uh quandaries so dear old queens and dan do you know why you're single or not really settled gay men's platonic relationships can be a great source of support and comfort to each other even becoming like family when family support is lacking but when it comes to dating that's where things often seem to go awry the vast majority remain single for years or decades while a significant number who do find someone often compromise enduring half-hearted relationships where all sorts of small issues are analysed, searching for reasons why things aren't going as well as they should be. Any number of articles written by therapists will torment the single individual to distraction, telling them it's their past, that they're not dealing with things properly, and they're not accepting themselves. I don't know why most aren't finding anyone, and it's not because they don't want to. And most who live with compromise do so as an alternative to living alone. If it were only about our limited numbers, why does the issue persist in cities with relatively large gay populations? If the problem was as shallow as fussiness about looks and status, as therapists also like to tell us, then why do so many good-looking... It's a dissertation. No, no, no. I know it sounds like it. (laughs) Anyway, if the problem was as shallow as fussiness about looks and status, as therapists also like to tell us, then why do so many good-looking successful gay men, thank you very much, remain equally (laughs) affected? Why do you think the reason is... Wow, mm. that's a very, wow. it's a long letter. It's very in-depth and very mm. analysing why a lot of gay men are single. What do we think? Oh, great question. I, mean, I, think there's lot, I think there's lots of things to unpack. I think, for one, like maybe they don't want to be in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, want to be, they, they want the freedom. And stages of their life where you want to be in a relationship and you want to be on your own and free. Um, and maybe those stages can last a decade. Why shouldn't they? Yeah. I don't know. Is it another thing? Is it like intrinsic? Uh, is it another thing of this, 
yeah, we're all living in a little bit of trauma living in, you know, we've all got this shame of society because we're gay. Maybe that's affecting our relationships in some way. What do, what do you think, Dan? I think, yeah, I totally agree. I, uh, <laughs> I'm always like willing to blame the system rather than my own potentially really shit dating sex habits. Who knows? But I'll just carry on blaming, blaming the system. I, you know, I'm a section 28 baby. I started school in 1988, finished college in 2003, the exact dates uh, of the start and finish of section 28. And I think, you know, the heart of the question, why do some, you know, I totally agree. A lot of people don't want to be in relationships, but why do a lot of people in the queer community find relationships and dating hard? I don't think we can ever underestimate the damage of institutional homophobia and legislation like Section 28 and all the countless other damaging, you know, there's still, I think it's 72 or 73 countries in the world which make it illegal, criminalise uh, being queer. The damage that that does in terms of our confidence is is like in, in like huge. You can't even like quantify it it goes it's like as well like if you can't see your own story reflected yeah. back how are you gonna how are you gonna live your your life yeah like that's a history thing but if it's an yeah. educational thing like it, with schools and stuff like it's impossible to carve your own pathway exactly so it's kind of you know like matthew todd so well talks about in straight jacket is how we can externalize find an outlet um for internalized shame and trauma um, and so I don't think, I think, you know, I'm actually reading this other book by, you know, Brené Brown. So what's the book? Bre- Brené Brown, she's, um, she had like one of the top, uh, looked at TED talks called, um, uh, the power of vulnerability and her book's called daring greatly, how the courage to be tra- vulnerable trans- transforms the way we live, love, a parent and lead. Anyway, the, the one thinking about the book in relevance to this is because, um, We've had such a tiny um, space in 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 the public consciousness, in in cultural consciousness, in our own space to understand uh, who we are, let alone cherish who we are. That of course we're not going to have a deep toolkit on how to um, build healthy relationships because we've had a very narrow space in order to inhabit. So that's why pride, and that's why all forms of like queer. Um, reclamation of space both the mental and physical space is so important so that we can actually practice more having healthy relationships so i just i think for for the person who asked that question it's we've got to if we don't look at the root cause we'll just look at the symptom of everything rather than the root cause of it all so i think they're the main reasons why i think that's right blame the system yeah, exactly. But I agree I, as well. And also I think if we do look at it objectively like that, we can actually have a little bit a little bit more understanding of each other and not be so kind of judgmental about each other and actually understand why we do the things we do, why we are the way we are. And actually yeah. we can understand that. And then if we have that understanding, maybe better relationships are going to come out of that, whether they're friendships yeah. or fuck buddies or romantic yeah. relationships. Yeah. And what we're sold from like mainstream society is so limited and so narrow minded that we have such false expectations of how to um, have healthy relationships when it comes to sex, when it comes to intimacy, when it comes to objectifying each other's bodies and thinking everyone should look like they should have a fucking six pack or whatever. Totally. It's just so unreal. 
And, you know, I remember as a teenager watching Queer as Folk on telly. And for me, that was just blew my blew my mind. It just And everyone's had their own version of Queer as Folk. And now there's obviously a lot more. You have no role model in society, then you're just grasping at straws. Totally. And then, uh, and then you don't really know how to have a relationship with anyone. You know, yeah. that's the problem. I, I was just going to just also say, like, what is like, what is this person's idea of a relationship anyway? Like, yeah. Maybe I had like fantastic sex all night long last night. Maybe I can say that I'm in a relationship just because I don't take them to the theatre or you see me out having dinner with them, whatever. Like, aren't those things, we're just putting the way that you present you present that to other people in an acceptable way. Yeah, exactly. And it's about, uh, it's about communicating that there can be different types of relationship. It doesn't have to be heteronormative, monogamous, getting married, having kids. You know, there's lots of different relationships that you can have that, that can be equally fulfilling, you know, and actually give you a little bit more, you know, you, I think in, in life you have to have multiple relationships, whether they're friendships, sex relationships, or romantic relationships. You can't just rely on one person to give you everything, no. you yeah. know, and that's, that's the problem. Our expectation is because of, because of everything we're fed through the media and because of straight society, we're fed this thing where you have the one, the one person who's going to complete you. And it's like, yeah. that's, it's already starting from a dysfunctional place because only you can complete you and everything else is the cherries on top. Right. Yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. And I think there's also a lot about, you know, for so long we, you know, we've we internalized the stigma that, uh, of all the, the vile things that have been thrown at the queer community, yeah. um, that is easy to re, like re-manifest that in a quite like a throwaway culture, which um, treats people like you know objects rather than rather than the like queer gods that we are. And I think it's really what I'm trying to challenge myself on. You know, I'm sure it's like so many people we've grown up. Um, in a kind of hostile and homophobic environment where we we can't we literally can't have open relationships. Um, I grew up in a very religious environment, and you know it's just like throw away fucks in alleyways with people who you'll never see again, um, which is great at the time, but you never have deep meaningful relationships because you can't have public displays of affection. Anyway, the point I'm to challenge myself on really looking at every relation of have I have as I have as like the queer gods that we've always been denied and and trying to challenge that kind of throwaway culture that we've had to exist within and right now it's illegal to be in a re- open relationship isn't it really with uh, boris's um can't have sex indoors with someone not in your bubble and you yeah. can't have sex outdoors which is why i think we should start a dogging renaissance in mm. fact I, well, Neil Bartlett man. said the same thing last week. He said, Can I just Neil say Neil a socially distanced Neil wank in public spaces <laughs> is the way to go? Damn <laughs> right. I've actually found a um, perfect car park in northeast London uh, where we should, like, we can't, we've got obviously publicly, but we'll find ways. Well, I'm just doing some fucking video, aren't I? Um, but, um, <laughs> we'll have a double renaissance party. I think, you know, with, oh God, we can't talk too much about crime because I want to shoot myself in the face. But we've got to look at 
and really looking at the discrepancies of what this establishment deem as essential and what they deem as non-essential. Of course, the Tory government have always been completely complicit in institutional homophobia, like Section 28 we talked about. Things haven't changed so much. And of course, they're not going to prioritise the queer community's well-being and needs. You know, already a fifth of our queer space, sorry, a third of our queer spaces have been shut down in the last five years. So many of them might be on the scrap heap because of the impacts of corona, meaning that there's even less spaces for us to connect and thrive and love each other. So we're going to have to be inventive with how we claim Dan, you're sounding a bit like a you're sounding a bit like a robot. Yeah, you, you ah, kind of you're breaking up. I don't think we should spend too long on these questions. Can we move on to the next one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. this one's similar. Amazing. In a way, it's similar. Um, or it, it, it taps into the same issues. Uh, dear old queens, did any of you come out as gay before accepting it? I mean, in the period between realising you're gay and until accepting it, self-acceptance. I'm working on my own self-acceptance, and I think that coming out is hard to do if you haven't fully accepted yourself but on the other hand, coming out could also be important, an important part of the journey of self-acceptance. What do you guys think? I think you're absolutely right. I think coming out is part of the journey of self-acceptance. Mm. So the question is, did we accept ourselves before coming out? Or did it help? Or did coming out excel, help with accelerating self-acceptance? Yeah, I, d I don't think I was comfortable in my own skin as being gay i came out when i was 22 i don't think i was comfortable in my own skin about being gay until i was about 30 which is about eight years later and then it took another decade for me to actually be be completely comfortable with me and myself yeah, so yeah. i think it is part of the journey i don't think you need to think you you accept yourself beforehand i think that is it's all part of you know getting your friends and family to accept you or not um yeah it is part of that journey of your own acceptance but i, I don't know what mm. what are your guys experience i feel like for me my journey of accepting myself has been more a bit more nuanced than just that like it's been about like um embracing something that feels more femme and a bit more non like not fitting in with with something else i think that when i first came out you know in the 90s i probably thought that i wanted to present myself as something that felt very like i don't know what we're saying like a professional i'm going to say like a professional gay a kind of like the stylish gay do you know what i mean i like think we were both of... on that journey because that was what was peddled to us at the time wasn't it that was how gay people were that was what was attractive yeah so you look really good and clean and kind of like image and it was just sort of caught up in a bit in the kind of thatcher stuff i guess yeah. a hangover of that or at least definitely a hangover of the, i mean i came out in what 1990 so mm -hmm. yeah it was all about that i mean i was an indie kid and when i came out I decided to completely change who I was because my boyfriend at the time and what I was seeing on the gay scene was a, was very different to the way I presented myself. And I think it took yeah. me like 20 years to actually come back to who I was, you know, yeah. back to somebody who I recognize as being me. 
Um, yeah. uh, and that's it's partly because of the gay scene. It's partly because of society. It's partly because of the journey that you have as a human being, I think, about accepting who and what you are and no, and getting to know yourself along that journey. I don't know. what Dan, what's what's your experience? I never had the, like, da-da, coming out moment um, because, well... I won't say his name, but there was a beautiful punk from Camden who I was going out with when I was a teenager who I was called a second off on the sofa at home. Um, <laughs> and my mum had like plastic sheeting. It was the kind of sofa with plastic sheeting um, on it. Uh, so the punk, my ex. Jen ex- Crawford. <laughs> I was just about to say the same thing. <laughs> Uh, like a, a North East London Jewish version of Joan Crawford. No, would not. Well, she might actually like that. And so I never had to do that. I'm out because it was just fucking obvious. Um, but then it was very not accepted. So I just kind of legged it from all the kind of institutions that I grew up with, like home, school, and just pegged it to Soho and, and do what you do in Soho, really. And God bless that alleyway outside of a ghetto nightclub in Falkenberg Court. But it. did you find that Soho was somewhere that you felt like, like because if you go to Soho now, I don't feel a yeah, yeah, I've still got a lot of nostalgia for Soho, for Camden, where I kind of grew up, um, even though they're parodies of themselves in many ways now. Mm-hmm. I think, I think there's so much, well, there's so little spaces that we have that even though so much of Soho pisses me off, I still have like a deep love for for the geographical space, for its history, and for the queer community and all its shapes and forms who present ourselves in often, well, in many ways, because underneath it all is that collective experience, that collective trauma. So I did find, I did find Soho in the 90s uh, a magical place and a life-saving for me because I, I'm from, uh, my biological background is quite a religious fundamental Jewish background where it's an abomination to be gay. So for me, it was a lifesaver because I knew loads of I knew four boys by the age of 14 from my synagogue who'd already, in my Jewish community, who'd already killed themselves. So we, oh. the remainder of our queer Jewish gang called it running from the synagogue to Soho. So it was a life, it wasn't a huge lifeline. So all the shitty things just kind of faded into the background. That would be the title of your autobiography. We're running from the synagogue to Soho. Wandering <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> Jew who found himself in a Soho alleyway. Yeah, so I think there's different stages of of different coming out. It's not some like accelerator into the sunset. We have to come out in different shapes or form all all the time. And sometimes we go back into the closet in some ways. But the stage where I'm at in my life now, so this is like twenty odd years later from the plastic sofa covering incident. I'm lucky. I know I'm lucky. So fucking glad that I'm queer. I'm so fucking glad that I'm queer. I still have, you know, lots of straight mates, but I just feel so lucky because we're part of such an incredible community who still has so much collective purpose. Um, And we are forced to be critical. We're forced to uh, challenge ourselves. Um, Even though there's times of like suicidal pain, like if you can get through to their end, it's, it can be, you know, when you've it's the, it's the extremities, like when you've been through so much shit, you go through the other end where you really appreciate the ultimate joy as well. So I think, yeah, at the moment, I'm just like having a blissful relationship with it, with with it all. But you know, I'm sure there'll be tough times again. Well, but we're all we're all here for each other. Yeah, there's a lot of us now. We're not hiding anymore. 
So, yeah. you know, well, most yeah, of us are. <laughs> so what did you say, Tommy? You cut out then. I said, I thought you just meant on this Zoom call. <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not hiding at all. <laughs> anyway, another. I've got two more questions. Uh, these are uh, on less kind of political notes, I think. So, dear old Queens, who's the daddy? Okay. Ooh. So I was in bed with a man who's probably five years... I mean, I think this sounds political already. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it depends what kind of politics you're after. So, (laughs) okay, so I was in bed with a man who's probably five years younger than I am, but he's a total masculine top, and I'm a bottom, who isn't very masculine at all. Well, I was just playfully calling him a daddy and he asked me how he could be the daddy if he was younger than i am i told him that being a daddy is not about age it's about attitude and i told him therefore he is the daddy and to put it back in me lol what are your thoughts on this i mean what are my th- what are our thoughts on him putting it back in you or being the daddy That's what- <laughs> yeah wow wow where do we start um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this uh, as I'm a daddy in residence. Wait, can you say that bit again in terms of... Uh, can, actually, can you repeat the whole question? There's just so much brilliance in there. Can you, yeah, can you repeat the whole thing? So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it to you. So this guy is in bed with someone who's five years younger than him, but yeah. the guy who's younger is the masculine top, and the older guy called him the daddy... But the younger guy was like, how can I be the daddy when I'm younger than you? And the older one was like, because it's more about an attitude and uh, therefore uh, get your cock back in me. Nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, who wants I to respond? Feel, I don't feel like it's a question. I just feel like, yeah, get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Damn I guess right. the question what? is, can if you know, can can an older person call a younger person a daddy? But is it more about being I a mean, top or a bottom, or is it more about age, or is it about it's attitude? Role, it's, it, it's fucking role play, isn't it? It's just role yeah. play. You're just playing out a role. So, like, why couldn't you be a daddy, a mummy, a brother, whatever floats your boat? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. Like. You get some really like wise young people and like like naive older people. So it's just yeah, it's just role play, and I think you can just have as much fun as you want with that. It's totally alien to me. I'm the self um, self titled CEO of the Vanilla Club um, <laughs> because I I am so, like an old romantic and just like what I get off on. I like I've had quite a few lovers who are into the whole role play thing. It just I just it's just not my thing. It's so alien to me. I just get off on it. Like we've actually set up these hilarious like vanilla parties where uh, we eat, we're naked, and give each other massages and eat vanilla ice cream, listening to like Billy Holiday and asking each other about what our nan was doing in the war. Because that's what I get off. What are you and what's your soul saying? Um, that's what I get off on. So I don't the whole like daddy thing. Well, see, they can fucking train me. Maybe after lockdown then i'll be up for it so um i i'd be up for knowing if i'm a daddy or not who knows i think the daddy thing has been a bit of a hot a, a catch-all thing for kind of older masculine men and it it can be a role play thing i mean i I've, i think when i first 
started being called a daddy, I was quite affronted by it because I was like, hang on a minute, what, what, what are you talking about? But I've kind of accepted it now and I've accepted that role. I guess it is about, it can be a bit about role play. It can be a bit about someone who's a little bit older, a bit more masculine. Uh, but they, I think daddies can be tops or bottoms. I think they can be uh, dominant. They can control as well. Sorry? They can control. They can control, yeah. It do, I mean, it, I don't know. I think, I th- again, that I think there's a the whole spectrum of daddies there if you want to call people daddies I, I, I don't think you can just define something as being older or younger or top or bottom or whatever yeah you know I yeah think, i think there maybe is a certain look for a daddy um yeah and um and then just you know maybe take it from there well we've so often said that i'm more of a mummy <laughs> <laughs> we have often said that <laughs> okay I think we have we sorted that. Have we sorted the daddy issue out? I don't think it'll ever be sorted, but you know, the, uh, like ongoing journey, which I'm sure there'll be like daddy issues galore after we get out of lockdown. I'm sure there's loads of underground daddy issues going on at the moment. Well, the, I think one of the good things about the, da- the whole daddy thing is that it started to be like the gay scene started to be more accepting of older gay men. And whereas when Tommy and I came out, if you were past 30, you were dead in gay years. You know, that was was it. Whereas, and I think because of the AIDS thing as well, where we had a a pretty much lost generation because of that, the fact that, you know, younger gays are appreciating older gays and seeing their worth and wisdom and sexiness uh, is a good thing. So that's why I've embraced the whole daddy thing. Yeah, good. I'm glad, hot daddy. I get it frustrates me all the like ages thing so much because it's just it's just so boring. It's just so boring. Yeah. It's like why would we want to just? It's it's narcissistic. Yeah. Um, I've got no time for it. Like, it's why right. would we want to just fancy ourselves? What? Boring. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Okay. okay. What's the next question? Next question, dear old queens. And the lovely Dan Glass. I want to be an old queen. Okay, okay, you, you're in the pantheon. You're in the throne room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dear old queens, are glory holes the safest way to have sex now? <laughs> I asked this somewhat humorously. <laughs> I asked this somewhat humorously, yeah. but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't thinking about how I'm going to resume sexual activities now that places are starting to reopen. And to those of you who are all ready to pounce on me about how selfish I'm being and I need to calm down my horny ass, etc., you might as well save your energy because you'll be preaching to the choir. Staying home and jacking off can only do so much for me. I need to touch, feel, see a human body. So if anyone can think of a creative and safe way to have sex, oral and or anal... In the age of coronavirus, I'm all ears. P.S. I've never really been into glory hole stuff because I like to see, touch, feel a person. I'm playing with the idea, but if I run out of options, it may come to that. Okay, so what do we think? Glory holes? Great question. Just to clarify, is glory hole seen as um, the safest way because you, uh, you can't transmit sweat and everything through the wood? Yeah, I mean, I think you can transmit through semen, 
but yeah. it, you know um maybe if they're wearing a condom in the glory hole that's fine yeah um yeah but what do we reckon is this it are glory holes a safe way to uh beat the coronavirus is it an is it another way other than you know socially distance wanking well everyone keeps saying and i'm going to say it now i'm not a scientist yeah. <laughs> but i do feel like instinctively like probably the most infectious thing would be kissing would it be not probably because i think the coronavirus kind of lives in the throat before it it goes anywhere else yeah i don't know really to be honest but there could be something in it that's all i'm gonna say yeah i think um well i think in terms of the specific example of glory house and our lovely call specific question if the need is to see the person then maybe we could create a giant see-through perspex glory hole wall so that we can see our partners. You know, there's, we've got to be inventive. There's many ways to, to skin a cat. And I think you know, it's obviously completely unrealistic that people aren't going to kiss and fuck. And we need to marry that up with how we can reduce wider transmission and protect those most vulnerable. But it's completely unrealistic to think that people won't. So we've just got to find inventive ways to, to, to do have joyful sex in the way that we need, which is more... Um, protective. So in this, whether it's the masks, where the, obviously, you know, condoms, but in this particular way, I think having Perspex is the see-through glass, right? I am saying the right word. Yeah, you have. Yeah. Just uh, make a giant see-through Perspex glory hole wall. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or, like, or like, you know, sex suits. Sex suit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's have a sex suit. <laughs> I, want, have to be a I want a clubbing suit which also doubles as a sex suit. Damn right. <laughs> like cruising will go through the roof, dogging will go through the roof. Um, it, you know, in, in many ways, you know, we're the queer community, are like incredible ability to adapt and like, like uh, see through the cracks um, in many ways. So I think. It brings a whole new meaning to what's the crack. (laughs) Exactly. I'm up for a Perspex glory hole wall in Trafalgar Square, and I help make it if if that caller likes the idea. Um, Funded by the government, obviously. (laughs) Funded by the Tories. Funded by the Tories. Well, let's face it, they're probably more into glory holes than we are. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. They know how that works. They do. Right. On that note, I think it's a good good point to end uh, the podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. You've cheered me up so much. Uh, thank you, uh, Dan, for, for being a b- fantastic guest. I can't wait to read your book. Yeah, you were brilliant, Dan. Oh, thank you so much. So good to chat. And then, like, what? so you've got the podcast coming. What's your other plans in the next little while? Well, the uh, just the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. well, we will see each other in a big uh, in fact we yeah a little birdie said that at some point in the near future when it's a socially acceptable time to have the george michael party that we do in Hampstead, oh, that a, a little yeah. birdie told me that that might happen again oh yeah i'm well up for a george michael I party. i really want to go to that yeah it's been so fun it, this will be the fourth year um, and it's the 30th anniversary of Freedom, George Michael's song Freedom. So obviously more poignant than ever. So we're going to create a catwalk in the woods and recreate the Freedom song and the burning jacket and the bed sheets 
uh, and just have loads of fun because we fucking deserve it like, after after all of this. We'll do the podcast live from there. Yeah, uh, exactly. amazing. Exactly. <laughs> I wonder how, like, I wonder how George Michael will be remembered apart from his music in terms of like being a sexual liberator. Oh, big time, big time. Yeah, total pioneer in you know his his statement. Fuck off! This is my culture. Is what we have on a banner in the woods <laughs> when we had the parties because he was defiant and and knew that life was short and wasn't going to take for any like any of the like harassment. So yeah, definitely in terms of like a cultural icon for sexual freedom. And if let's go outside isn't an anthem for coming out of uh, lockdown, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what is. So fucking right. Because okay, great. I'll let you know as soon as we know. It's going to be the next soon. <laughs> uh, I like the gang, but I think we should do it as soon as possible because things. You know, I've just come back from the Black Lives Matter protest, and we have to things that we are obviously getting out. Shops are reopening on Monday, but we have to obviously be conscious of how we do things. But I think in the next, do you think it's valid to do it in the next couple of weeks? Um, I think it was. I think it was, it was. You could do that socially distantly, couldn't you? Yeah. 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 Totally. Anyway, thank you, Dan. Please say goodbye thank to our lovely so listeners. Oh, bye. Thank you so much for having me. Keep strong out there um, and see you back outside soon. Yeah. Oh, back outside in the woods. Yes. <laughs> back outside in the dogging areas, at the glory holes, wherever. Um, <laughs> Tommy, say goodbye. Love you daddies out there. Teach me how to how to be a daddy one day (laughs) (laughs) well um coming to udemy soon is bernie's daddy class one-on-one so there you go (laughs) no it isn't (laughs) maybe it is maybe i should do that (laughs) anyway tommy say goodbye loads of love goodbye goodbye and we will see you next time on what that old queen you have been listening to what that old queen written and presented by tom marshman and bernie hodges the show was produced by bernie hodges in lockdown 2020 for hodge podcasting if you'd like to sponsor a show or you just like to be a guest, or you have a question for the old queens, you can email on hello at thatoldqueen.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.